All right, we are back. Today we are joined by none other than Zachary Loeb. Let's hear what his story is. My name is Zachary Loeb. I am currently a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of History and Sociology of Science. My research sits kind of at the intersection of the history of technology and disaster studies. And I'm currently working on a dissertation project that looks at the year 2000 software crisis, better known as Y2K. Before starting on my PhD, I have a background in media studies, um, as well as years working as a librarian. And generally, I've just always been really interested in questions about how societies make sense of technological change, how they navigate technological change. And a lot of my focus within that research has looked particularly at critics of technology um, and kind of social critics who put a lot of emphasis on technological issues. So in case this is your first time tuning in to Are You a Robot? This is a series around AI ethics and governance. We want to tackle some of the biggest questions that stem from these technologies. We're getting the best and brightest minds that we can find on here to talk with me about how they see the world and what they are doing. We are looking to create some best practices as we move forward. And in order to do that, we have these conversations with these experts and thought leaders. But we also have a Slack community that I highly encourage you to get involved with. There are some people that are much smarter than me on there, and they are sharing their opinions as to what they are doing, what they're working on, how they view the world. So please come join us in the Slack community. And the last thing that I will say is that we have an incredible sponsor. Ethics Grade is an ESG benchmarking firm that specializes in technological governance. And they are the reason that we have such high caliber guests on. I want to thank them because without their support, we would not be here. If you want to check out Ethics Grade or the Slack community, go ahead and look at the links below and you'll find everything you need. So without further ado, let's talk with Zachary. Are you a robot? We are here today to talk about life and technology. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of avenues that we can go down and I want to try and cover everything. I know that the main meat and potatoes of this talk is going to be about the blog post that you wrote, uh, which is critiquing the social dilemma. But before we get into any of that, okay. I would really just love to hear about what you're working on now you you gave us this intro on y2k what does that mean i mean i think most of us can remember y2k maybe some of us were born after it um but what what are you studying when it comes to y2k so i i love that you put uh the comment there most of us can remember y2k because I feel like that kind of uh, is, is a good entry point in two directions. So the first thing is when I tell my students what I study and I say Y2K, I'm very quickly reminded of my age because they were born in like the year 2000 or 2001 or, yeah. 
and they they have no memory of this. And then for people who do remember it, there's a tendency to remember it as kind of like this silly thing, this mm. joke, this situation that was so hyped and overblown. And exactly. I should be very honest in noting that when I first started working on it um, several years ago, my initial reaction was that I was going to be telling the story of something that was this moment of hype, that was this overblown reaction. And in doing the research and really getting down into all of the documents, all of the archival material, all of the technical manual, um, hearing from people who were actually involved in doing the work, I've really come to appreciate how much the fact that we remember it as kind of a hoax, as kind of a joke, is really a result of a tremendous amount of work that prevented a calamity. Um, that Y2K is something that we tend to remember in this silly way, but Y2K is really a tremendous success story. It is an instance where experts within the IT community sounded the alarm about a problem, and though they definitely had to go through a lot of work to you know, get their warning taken seriously, eventually people in positions of responsibility and power, people who had control of the purse strings, um, took the warning seriously and devoted the resources necessary to fixing the problem before it could result in calamity, with the result being that they fixed it so well that kind of nothing happened. So that's the story that I'm working on. That's the story I'm working on telling and unearthing. But to kind of relate it back to some of the, the larger themes that we're going to be discussing today, part of what drew me to Y2K and part of why I think it's such an interesting story to tell is that in the 1990s, in this moment that the year 2000 software crisis is taking place, it's really this moment of societal and cultural shift as more and more people are becoming increasingly aware of just how reliant they have become on computer technology. This is this period where even individuals who maybe don't own a personal computer themselves, maybe they have not become reliant on computer technology to the extent that people feel they have become reliant today, they suddenly realize, oh, the power plants are reliant on computers. All of these government bodies that are responsible for, you know, making sure I get my paycheck, they are reliant on computers. The Department of Defense is reliant on computers. The plant that makes sure that my water is properly treated, like all of that is so entangled with computers. So on the one hand, the story of Y2K is the story of people coming together and fixing the problem. But at the same time, Y2K is also a story about societies becoming increasingly aware of just how reliant on computer systems they have become. Yeah, I remember actually that one thing that people mentioned was the stoplights and how that was one of the fears that all the stoplights were going to go haywire and we would have just like total calamity on the streets once, uh, once it turned the year 2000. And that's really interesting what you're saying about 
this was halted. This could have been a lot worse than it was. And I think that's fascinating, drawing the parallel into what we are going to talk about today and how that is exactly the opposite case, right? This was the case of, well, nobody really sounded the alarm and now we're in this place where we are today. But I'm also wondering about, you You mentioned in your brief intro too, about how you study critics. And mm-hmm. I know that in your blog post you mentioned um, you mentioned one critic, and I also have uh, a little birdie that told me about another critic that you really like. And these <laughs> two people are, you have Joseph, and let's see if I can pronounce this last name, Weizelbaum, right? Weizelbaum. Weizelbaum. I should know this because I live in Germany these days, and I should be able to pronounce names like that, but I've just just gotten here, so I need a little more time. And then <laughs> the other critic that you you enjoy is uh, Lewis Mumford, if I'm not mistaken. Can you just break down what it is about these folks that you are drawn to? <laughs> um, I feel like the question here is how honest do you, do you want me to be with, uh, <laughs> with why I am drawn to them? I mean, I feel full, like... Yeah, full uh, transparency. Yeah, I feel like if I want to give an answer that sounds respectable, I should say, well, you know, they are, you know, fascinating 20th century figures who left behind interesting and very prescient bodies of work. Um, But I also imagine that some of my friends would probably tell you that, like, I'm just like a kind of curmudgeonly person. So the fact that I've been drawn to people who are a bit curmudgeonly, um, you know, maybe there's no surprise there. Um, In terms of my interest in critics, I'm very, and I mean, I think that this gets to the the review and other things like it, uh, as well as my focus on Y2K, I'm really, really interested in pushing back on the idea that nobody saw it coming, Mm. regardless of kind of what the it is. Um, One of the things that I find over and over again in my research across a variety of things is that most of the time there were people warning that, Mm. you know, whatever the bad thing would was that it was going to happen. Um, Usually, um, and and I recognize that that you're uh, podcasting out of out of Germany right now, and I'm I'm in the states, and I will f- certainly admit that there is probably a kind of U.S. centric bias to what I'm about to say. But in terms of science and technology, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on the positives, on progress, um, and there tends to be some real hesitance and distaste for the people who are saying, maybe this isn't gonna be good. Maybe this isn't going to work out. So there is kind of this long history of the people who try and sound the alarm um, being kind of mocked and derided as prophets of doom or chicken littles or Jonah's or boys who cry wolf or you know so on and so forth. And I feel like we often go through this kind of trajectory where somebody warns that something bad is possible. That person gets kind of mocked and derided as being like a technophobe who wants everybody to go back and live in caves. Then the thing that they warned about happens 
and everybody throws up their arms and says, who could have seen this coming? Nobody saw this coming. And then we learn nothing. And then we repeat the whole cycle. Um, so part of the reason that I am drawn to the works of, you know, Mumford and Weizenbaum, and I mean, I could list many other um, figures as well, is that I think that there's something really, really fascinating about studying the people who warned us that we would wind up here, um, but who were ignored and overlooked and kind of driven to the margins. Yeah. Yeah. So such good points. I mean, there is something that I, let's just get into the blog already because I, I think that we've talked about it. We've danced around the, the topic enough and now let's get into the, the meat of this. And the first thing that I got to say is, yeah, the blog came out and shots fired. You definitely are are making sure that it's like, hey, yeah, this is uh, not the whole truth. And I personally, once I read your view of this, I felt like I was a bit of like a, a basic bitch just believing the narrative that Netflix and the social dilemma just put in front of me. And then I went, yeah, that's true. It is bad. And once I saw what you wrote, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, where is my critical thinking? This is so true, how you were able to open me up to that in so many different ways. And I encourage anyone who is listening to go and, and read the article right now. It is called Fireworks, I think, or Flamethrowers and... Um, flamethrowers and it's fire flamethrowers and fire extinguishers. Which is a great name. So the, the main thing that... I was grappling with the whole time that I was reading the blog post is yes, there are definitely some iffy statements going on in the social dilemma, right? But is it not worth it to sound the alarm and to make a movie like this, even if it is coming with like a little bit of everything that we now know or that you bring up in the blog? Uh, so, so first off, um, if you, if you or anybody listening to this felt, um, personally attacked by it, um, my apologies. Uh, I also feel like one of the strange things about, you know, the current period, and, and I guess this is a, another example of good and bad things about social media is that it's pretty easy to, you know, write something and, you know, you post it online and you're like, five people are going to read this and <laughs> three of those five people are going to be related to me. And it kind of blows up in a way that you aren't necessarily expecting. Um, so I think that in terms of the social dilemma and in terms of your point there, um, I think that anything that happens that asks people to ask critical questions about the world they live in, the technologies they use, is worthwhile. Um, so if somebody watches The Social Dilemma, um, is encouraged to watch The Social Dilemma, and it prods them to start thinking critically about the issue, 
I think that that is great. Um, I think that it is definitely better for somebody who hasn't thought about these issues to watch the social dilemma and start thinking about these issues than for somebody to not think about these issues at all. That being said, um, I think that when you encounter things like this, it is always important to keep walking, you know, Mm. keep going after. So like, allow these questions to trouble you, allow these questions to push you in new directions, but then keep walking. You know, one of the things, you know, I, I mentioned before that I have a background as a librarian. And one of the things that 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 background has definitely biased me towards thinking is that like research is an ongoing process and living in a society is also an ongoing process. You need to keep being informed. You need to keep exploring these topics. You need to move deeper and further beyond these things. So to just, you know, in terms of the social dilemma, to give two examples. Um, So two figures who come up in the film quite often, they're interviewed, they are directly praised, are uh, Shoshana Zuboff and Jaron Lanier. And if people after watching The Social Dilemma go read Lanier and Zuboff, great. But people should also look at the work cited pages in those books and dig deeper into these issues and keep exploring these and keep thinking. And then the other part of this is that I think that it's very important for us all to be critical consumers of information. Yes. Um, And to recognize that the information that is being presented to us, the way that it is being presented, um, there are certain biases that are part of this. There are certain viewpoints at work here. And it is worth critically investigating those. It is worth critically wrestling with those. And especially in the case of the social dilemma, I think that it is very important, even as this film raises a lot of interesting and important questions, even as it generates a lot of thought, um, just to be aware of the fact, you know, and this is one of the points that I made in my kind of review of it, is that it's very important to be aware of the fact that the main people who are voicing these arguments in the social dilemma are, you know, part of the world of Silicon Valley. Mm. You know, they are presenting a perspective. And even if there is a lot to be said for that perspective, you know, they are people in this story. You know, one of the things that I critique about the film is that a lot of you know, not to be too ungenerous, but I mean, I've already written this thing. So what am I talking <laughs> Just about? Just come out with it. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think that if you are really analyzing the social dilemma critically, one of the things that you eventually have to tangle with is that there are a lot of people in this film who are kind of guiltily trying to come to terms with things that they were responsible for. And in some ways, it often feels like they are trying to, through their present 
shifts cover up some of the past things that they were involved with. Yeah, completely. I mean, one great point that you spoke about, I think at the end of the article was how you're not seeing any of these guys advocating for taking responsibility for this, right? They're not saying, oh yeah, like we should be punished because we fucked this whole thing up. They're basically saying, oh, we didn't know. And I think that the thing that hit me the hardest was you have a paragraph in there and I am paraphrasing this like hell, but you basically are saying these guys are, they're saying, I didn't know, we didn't know what the consequences would be. And then you go like, well, yeah, how can we know what the consequences would be? I don't know. Maybe read a fucking book on history of this shit. Like, come on. What are you thinking? How we didn't know what the consequences would be. And you make such a valid point that, of course, you're not going to think about what the consequences are if you just are in your little bubble. But if you go outside of that and you do some research on... Uh, I can't remember what how exactly you phrased it, but basically like technology and how it the detriments of technology, the potential harms of technology. And you see it through the eyes of history and that cycle that you were talking about becomes so much more evident and clear. Then maybe it will give you a little bit of humility as you start to build these products. And so I want to make it very clear too that I absolutely loved your critique on it. What I think opened my eyes the most on this critique was exactly what you said about being critical about the information that you take in and making sure that it's not just like blind faith when you hear things and you watch things and you just say, oh, well, they like made a documentary about it. And it's easy for some topics like that maybe you don't, uh, and I think this is society at large these days and we have a bit of a problem with it, but it's easy for me to look at certain topics such as like conspiracy theories like the flat earth, right? And say, oh, well, that's a bunch of bullshit. Like show me some sources. But then when it hits closer to home and I'm like, yeah, I don't really like Facebook that much anymore. It is destroying the, you know, society then I don't look at sources and I just go, yeah, I, I believe this, this documentary. It, it totally goes in line with what I feel, what I see happening. So I'm not going to be critical about it. And that is one thing that I think by reading your article, I was able to be much more critical about this. And so thank you for that. I am going to, uh, I'll pause there in case you want to, say anything on what I just said. Otherwise, I'll ask away at another question. Well, I, I mean, it, thank you, uh, first off. Uh, I, I do, I, I think that just to kind of take a moment to go back to the point about history, and again, like here I recognize that I'm obviously biased and that, you know, I am studying history and I think that it's a good thing if people study history and like I own up to that. But I think that it would do people well to be more familiar with the history of technology and to be more familiar with the way that new technologies are often celebrated by so much hype and so much excitement. 
and that the costs of those things often go unrecognized, um, are underemphasized. And I think that too often, um, and I think this is one of my main criticisms of the people involved in the social dilemma, the you know, technologists involved, is that it is important to really think about what are the potential negative consequences of your actions. Um, you know, what are going to be the side effects? What are going to be the impacts for people who do not look, talk, act, and think like you? What are going to be some of the bigger societal uh, consequences? And, you know, there is a large body of scholarship and research that engages with these topics, that engages with these issues. And this isn't strictly a matter of looking at like history, looking far back. I feel like in recent years, especially, we have, you know, seen this kind of cultural shift where it suddenly became okay to criticize Facebook. And I think that in the present moment, like there is so much anger directed towards Facebook that a lot of people have forgotten that like not that long ago, if you said anything bad about Facebook, like people lit you on fire for it. Like you got in big trouble, like people, well, I mean, big trouble is probably, you know, being hyperbolic, but like people really like made fun of you. People really yeah. pushed you to the side. Like people really said like, it. yeah, I mean, people were, were not interested in hearing these criticisms. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's important to, look back and realize that a lot of the people who were criticizing social media, who were criticizing web 2.0, who were raising concerns about the internet before this present moment, you know, a lot of their concerns have come out to be very prescient, very accurate. And I think that it is worth remembering that at the time that the people in this film we're building all of these tools and we're doing all of this stuff. There were also people at that same moment who were saying, we should slow down. We should think this through. The people who are designing and unleashing this stuff don't know what the consequences are going to be. And then the problem in a film like The Social Dilemma is that the people who then get to tell the kind of heroic story are the people who caused the problem, not the people who tried to sound the alarm. Yeah, and that's one thing that I think you make very clear when you talk about how they are now elevating themselves up to this critic level, right? And they get to say like, oh, now I'm the one who had this come to Jesus moment and I realize how bad it's been. And so now I get to critique it instead of looking at the people that you're talking about who were sounding the alarm back in those days and they had the foresight already. And we don't get to see them in the documentary anywhere. So that's a, it's a great point. I mean, I'm wondering as far as this going back to like reading a book and making sure that you're versed in the history of technology, do you feel like that should be some kind of required reading or it should be in the curriculum of every software engineer or the coding boot camps? How do you foresee that happening? 
so this is a much bigger, much larger, uh, much more challenging question. And one of the issues here is that technically speaking, some of this should be required. I mean, in a lot of engineering departments, they are required to take a semester of engineering ethics. They might be required to take a class that's related to the history of technology or that is, you know, in communication studies or media studies or STS or, or one of these related fields. So on the one hand, one of the challenges here is that a lot of these students are getting some of this exposure, doesn't necessarily stick. Um, and I think that part of the larger problem here goes beyond a matter of, trying to think of how to phrase this. If all of society's problems could be solved by having people read the right book, we wouldn't be in this mess to begin with. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I am sure that everybody has their own idea of like what that right book would be. And there are many people who think that they are the person who is going to write that correct book. But I think that some of these just come down to bigger, more complicated questions about kind of society writ large. Like it's not just a matter of education and how do you educate engineers and how do you train engineers. It's about if society is focused on, you know, churning out the newest app that is going to gather 5% more intrusive data on people than that last app, well, then there is always going to be a certain portion of people who are going to really want to be the person who does the people who design that app because they're going to profit from it. Mm. Um, you know, if you organize your society in a very different way, then the questions that people ask, the things that people design, um, the way that your society becomes technologically configured, um, you know, moves in a very different direction. And I mean, I think that here, some of the question does have to do with, you know, to, to get back to your education point, um, what kind of, what kind of future do students think that they are pursuing? Um, what kind of technologies do they think they are going to be creating? What kind of world do they think they're moving into? You know, do they think that they are going to be a billionaire? Or do they think that they are going to be, you know, a moderately compensated person doing IT work in the background? Mm -hmm. And when all is said and done, statistically speaking, more of them are going to wind up being moderately successful IT people than billionaires. And also, when you consider what actually keeps a society going, what actually keeps a society functioning, um, it may be the case that the people doing that less celebrated maintenance work are performing a more important societal function in the long run than, you know, that billionaire who makes the app that 
five years later, everybody decides that the main thing this app is doing is destroying democracy and making everybody miserable. Yeah. But it's, it's a question about not just education. It's a question about what kind of society do we want to live in? And I will not be so hubristic as to say that I have the definitive answer to that question. But I think that we too often separate the discussion around technology from the discussion around society. The kind of technology that we want is ultimately a question about the kind of society that we want. And if we want to have a conversation about what are good and bad technologies, we need to be willing to have the broader discussion about, you know, what do we think a good or a bad society would be? Well, and you still have hope that it's not too late that we still can change something? <laughs> um, so I feel like this is another one of those cases where, uh, you know, the answer that I feel like I should politely say out loud <laughs> or like the answer that I give in classes and then like the answer that I'll give when I'm like, just like talking to my friends is, is probably a bit different. Um, so to quote Lewis Mumford <laughs> uh, and, and to reveal too much about myself by the fact that I'm about to quote him, uh, he has this line at one point where he says, our numbness is our death. Um, as, and, and so that's the quote. It's a short one. You know, as, as long as, as long as we draw breath, we can do something. We can act, we can change the world, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. Usually those small ways um, can later result in bigger things. But, you know, even you as an individual, talking to the people around you, building community, you know, those things can matter. Um, so in terms of hope, you know, I, I definitely have some sense of hope just in terms of the fact that, like, I have to get out of bed every morning. Uh, and part of what motivates that is that even in terrible moments of darkness and, you know, I'm, I'm living in a city where there is a pandemic raging out of control at the moment um, and it can be difficult to be hopeful. But the idea that tomorrow can be better than today. And the idea that perhaps we can learn from the past. Um, I think that that is something that is very important to hold on to. Um, you know, utopia is not a place that I think I will ever get to live. Um, but to draw again on Mumford who talks about it this way at one point, you know, you can think about utopia as a compass. You know, you're never going to get to reach the points on the compass, but if you use that, it can help you determine which way to walk and which way to go. So I have some, you know, pessimistic tendencies uh, and I can be accused of being a bit uh, gloom and doomy at times. 
But at the end of the day, you know, the future is not written. And as long as we continue believing and continue acting as if um, we, we can change things, then we still can. You know, the, the biggest threat is, you know, apathy and lethargy and just giving up or, or to quote another um, critic who I'm fond of and, and uh, he, uh, another German, uh, Gunther Anders, uh, you know, our, our despair is none of our business. So I'll also just note that like people who know me who will if they hear the things that I just said will will probably say that like that is the most optimistic they've ever heard me being. <laughs> I feel like we need to put a nice piano track in the background and make that one of those motivational videos that you can wake up to in the morning. Well, I, I mean perfect. it's it's every every time that I have been in a classroom and I've been talking about these are related issues with students. And, you know, you can see students have the aha moment or you can see, or you can just talk to students and like hear from them what they are thinking, what they want to do, how they are approaching things. Um, you know, when we're sitting alone in our rooms, just tapping on our screens, it can, feel very isolating and like everything is within that box. But people don't want to live in a dystopian hellscape. Mm -hmm. And it may be that we are going to wind up in that dystopian hellscape. And it may be that we are sleepwalking towards that dystopian hellscape. But when you talk to people and you realize that like, that's not what they want, you know, find, find the hope in the little things. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what you taught, what you said there about the compass is absolutely brilliant and it's a great way to look at it. It's not like we're going to get to the N or the S, but we can use that as our guide to know where to go and which way, which direction to walk in. I think that's a beautiful metaphor for how we can look at uh, the next couple years or decades. And I'm wondering now. Just, just really quick, just to be clear, I was paraphrasing Mumford there though. The, yeah. the, the compass thing comes from his book, The Story of Utopias. I don't want to claim credit for that. <laughs> I wish I could, but it's, it's not mine. Nice. So I'm wondering now, as you are looking at where we are today in the end of 2020, right? <laughs> what are some things that because I bet it's got to be kind of annoying for you when you go through and you see the news cycles and you see things that happen and you go, oh, I told you so. I knew that was coming. You're like, you can, you're like that guy that is, oh, yeah, you, you see it coming. And then when it happens, you're like, well, I said this already, didn't I? So I'm wondering now, as we're in 2020, what are some things that, you feel like looking back on history, you can kind of feel we're in a similar situation, like drawing parallels to. And in history, how did we turn out? How did we overcome that? Do you feel like we, um, do you have any solutions for us for that? 
Um, so, so the first thing that I'll just note is that I, I do not want to suggest for even a moment that like I alone saw this coming or, or, or I, I don't want to suggest that for a moment. Um, any insights that I have are um, the result of building off of the people who have taught me, the people I have interacted with um, and all of the scholars who have drawn upon, whether that's, um, you know, people who are now long dead or scholars who are working right now. Um, you know, I do have, you know, I, I won't run through a whole list right now, but there, there is a, a lengthy paragraph in the piece where I kind of list off a lot of names and a lot of other people who are doing very important work on these topics. Mm, yes. Um, so in terms of what happens next, um, I don't know. I know that that's not the, the answer that was just asked for, but I think, and, and again, noting that, you know, I am, I'm in the U S and my focus on some of the ongoing issues is biased in that direction a little bit. I think that the combination of the pandemic, uh, the current political situation, which is happening with Trump still refusing to concede, um, and, you know, the climate emergency that is lingering in the background. There is a real question at this moment of what happens next and what do we do moving forward? Um, you know, I, I think that there is currently tremendously hopeful news about vaccines that's coming out. Um, that being said, to say that we are going to be able to have a mass vaccination project that, you know, gets a, a good slice of the public by April um, doesn't mean that we can act irresponsibly in the present. Mm. Um, you know, there's it, it, in the U.S., this is Thanksgiving week, and there is a lot of talk right now about how many people are going to be traveling to see their families and how this might, you know, cause the virus to spike even more. Um, I, I will be spending Thanksgiving in this apartment. Uh, I think that in terms of what history can teach us, the, the big thing to, that I would take away is that there are moments when enough crises intersect that it becomes very clear that the normal, the status quo that people had thought they were living under was a myth and that it, it cannot be returned to. And the question then is what comes next? Do we desperately try and rebuild the normal of 2012? Do we indulge in kind of a reactionary fever dream that tries to rebuild the normal of 1950? You know, the normal as it was seen by, you know, white men in power? Or do we look at this moment and say, we have multiple intersecting crises. Um, many of the institutions that we thought would serve us and protect us have failed to do so. 
Some of the technologies that we were assured would bring us together have pushed us further apart. Access to an unlimited amount of information, which was held up for so long as a good, has resulted in us drowning in misinformation. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to a, a little bit of what I said before. I think that the moment that we are in is one that challenges us to ask, what kind of society do we want to live in? What do we owe to each other? Each other there being not only the neighbors on either side of you, but the people struggling in your city, the people struggling in your state, the people struggling in your country, uh, the people struggling in the world. And also recognizing that like, when all is said and done, you might also be struggling. But it's the bigger question of what kind of world do we want to live in? And then what are the tools, what are the institutions that are necessary for that world, for building that world? And, you know, I have some of my personal answers to this, but I think that the the work here consists not of our personal answers, but of us coming together and figuring out what our answers are. Mm. Great points. And I think about the, the work that would need to be done and the coming together of that and how anyone who has done group projects or done kind of community work understands that how big of a project it is to have multiple voices and especially if everyone is at the same level having to find a consensus between everyone is is one of those where it it, it's not going to be an easy task right it's definitely going to be uh the work that we have to do if we want to change something so, okay, awesome. Let's dive a little bit deeper into one other piece of your critique that I wanted to look at, and that was this idea of politics because we kind of were tiptoeing on, on the subject a little bit and <laughs> how in the film they, what did they do? It was like extreme center. Yeah. Basically, they beat around the bush a lot when it came to politics and Mm -hmm. you made some great points that, okay, yeah, I understand they probably didn't want to take sides so that this film could be more well-received by the greater nation and considering how split we are or you are, I guess, now more than me, I, um, being that I don't live in the U.S. anymore, but as a nation, how split you are, you can feel that it was like they didn't want to take a side so that it would just be more of a crowd pleaser, I think. And and you kind of dive into that. Can you just recap what you were talking about there in the, in the blog? Sure. Um, So to give a a little bit of a reminder on what happens in the film. So the film kind of has these two trajectories. There's the documentary aspect of it. And then there is, a fictionalized narrative that features 
a family who is kind of living out and experiencing a lot of these problems. And in the fictionalized narrative, the kind of big problematic political force that is gathering all kinds of speed on the social media as it is depicted in the film is this group called the Extreme Center. Um, and like, it's really, really unclear what the Extreme Center stands for in the film, except kind of a general both sides are bad perspective. And part of this, you know, then when you kind of step back and you think about the politics of it, um, and you can see this, you know, if, if you even look to last week when Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook were once again being hauled before the Senate. You know, a lot of the social media companies are walking a careful political line right now where they are afraid that some kind of regulation is coming. Again, talking about the U.S. context. Um, and there's kind of this like weird back and forth that ha is happening in the U.S. right now where many prominent conservatives in the Republican Party emphasize over and over and over that the social media platforms are biased against conservatives, that the people who are running them are a bunch of, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, liberals. Um, and that has become a major right-wing talking point. And, you know, one of the problems then as you talk about the, the politics of the film is look at what politically is happening on these platforms right now. Like, what are the conspiracy theories and the misinformation campaigns that are going wild on these sites? You know, like... Uh, the, the documentary doesn't want to name, you know, it, it doesn't say like the problem is QAnon. It doesn't want to say the problem is, you know, militia groups. Um, but if you look at like, what are the top performing stories over and over again on Facebook? You know, it's not that half of them are Breitbart and half of them are democracy now. It's that all top 10 of them are from right-wing news sites. You know, if you, you know, if, if you spend some time on YouTube and you watch a bunch of videos there and maybe you watch a trailer for an upcoming science fiction film, the thing that it's going to recommend that you watch next isn't going to be a speech by Angela Davis. <laughs> it's probably going to be, you know, something from PragerU or, you know, another kind of right-wing figure or something that like shoves you pretty quickly down into kind of like a right-wing, you know, rabbit hole. And that's one of the things that the social network doesn't really want to talk about or doesn't really want to address is that, it is not that these tools are pushing people down either a left-wing rabbit hole or a right-wing rabbit hole, and they are pushing people down these in equal quantities. 
Mm. Um, and at a certain point, like the film and the people behind these, like there needs to be some more like honesty about like what is actually going on on these sites, you know, in the, in the social dilemma, you know, the storyline around the extreme center kind of focuses on, um, you know, the, the teenage male character who kind of falls down a rabbit hole of, you know, being kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, of content, you know, he falls down this rabbit hole of content on um, this kind of pushing his views in a particular direction but like you know what is the rabbit hole of content that you know white young men get pushed down on these sites Hmm. like this this is a real thing that like people need to be talking about like and to say that like it's to say it as a oh both sides both sides is like you know, right now there are a lot of things that are appearing on social media that are being tagged with a warning that like, this is not the actual or official result of what happened in the election. Like Mm -hmm. this is a deliberate attempt to push misinformation, to stoke, you know, all kinds of different responses, some of which are violent. And it is not true to say that right now, like both sides are pushing massive amounts of misinformation, trying to delegitimize an election. Mm -hmm. And some of these companies are so concerned about trying to appear politically neutral that it is keeping them from admitting that they have problems. Mm. Such a valid point. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh man. I I want to I mean in the article too, you mentioned that there's a big difference between pushing an article that talks about I think you you were saying like the some something some because i'm not hip to my conspiracy theories these days sorry if i get this wrong (laughs) to any conspiracy theorists out there but it was something like there's cannibal reptilians that are doing something controlling the government and then there's like another kind of conspiracy theory that like uh climate change is wrong or right i can't uh, or it's it's actually exists or doesn't um and I can't remember exactly how, how you phrased it, but it was just drawing attention to the fact that there's conspiracy theories and then there's very dangerous conspiracy theories, right? There's like this conspiracy theory is, it's a very different thing if it's calling for action and calling for, like you said, like militias to go and do something or if it's just, uh, if it's a conspiracy theory that is is a different of a different kind or of a different breed as I saw it. Did I get that right? So, yeah. I mean, I don't think that it's exclusively around conspiracy theory stuff. And I think that this does get back to kind of those larger questions about society and the way that things are discussed. But like, 
so often, and, and this is more of kind of a media criticism than like specifically like social media criticism of like, there's always this bias in US political coverage to say like both sides are, you know, they've got the, they've got their kooky people in them. Mm-hmm. But like, it isn't the same to say Black Lives Matter and to say the Democrats are controlled by cannibalistic pedophiles who are secretly being controlled by Jewish bankers. Like, these are not the same view. And like the way that there is this attempt to say, oh no, they're both extreme. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. Hmm. Like the view that climate change is real and the view that the earth is flat, like these are not equivalent extremes. And like, there is a point at which like, you just have to like say like, no, like these are not equivalent. Mm -hmm. And I recognize, and I'm not, you know, advocating for, for censorship here, but it gets back to a point I made before of like, in the early days of the internet, when it was still being referred to as the information superhighway, you know, in the 1990s, there was so much excitement and enthusiasm out of the belief that like, when people have access to more information, that's gonna solve all of their problems. All that people need is more and more information. But already in the 1990s, you were then immediately seeing people push back and say, but having access to more information doesn't mean that people are going to be knowledgeable about how to differentiate between good information and bad information, trustworthy information and untrustworthy information. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is that like people are just completely overwhelmed and inundated with information. You know, they type a couple of words into a Google search engine and whatever is in the top five links they click on and trust and it flattens out differences between very, very different perspectives. Mm. So looking back at Y2K, because I know, you, I know you've done <laughs> a lot of research on it, and how at the beginning of this talk we spoke about, it was like a success story on how someone rang the bell or they sounded the alarm and then we made it okay and now we look at it as a bit of a joke why do you feel like that didn't happen when you look at y2k and how someone was able to sound the alarm and then you look at the social media in our current landscape and no one was able to sound the alarm loud enough for us to listen Um, I wish I knew the answer to this question. Um, I I think that in some ways it's easier to understand fixing Y2K um, because when all is said and done, even though it was a very widespread problem and it took a lot of work and was, you know, was a major undertaking, like the problem itself wasn't that complicated. The scale of the problem was very difficult, but 
the the technical details themselves were not that difficult to fix. Um, and fixing Y2K, although it, again, was a major, major undertaking, it did not require dramatically restructuring society. It did not require a real reevaluation of the way that society was structured. I mean, so I don't want to appear blithe or overly simplistic, but one of the ways that you solve Y2K is you pump millions and millions and millions of dollars into IT. Yeah. So if there's a problem with your computers and the way to fix it is to buy new computers and to bring on more IT people, that fix doesn't dramatically change society and it doesn't require that society be dramatically changed. I think that some of the issues around social media um, kind of get back to one of the questions that you were raising before. And I think that when we confront complex societal questions that have very, very thorny and complicated and emotional aspects to them. There's a real desire to get around all of that difficult stuff by having an easy technological fix. So one of the things that I think was a big problem for people who were criticizing social media and the internet early on was that there was so much excitement and enthusiasm. And I mean, there always is, you know, when, when trains were new, when radio was new, when the telegraph was new, when television was new, all of these new technologies have always been greeted with all kinds of utopian hopes. Um, I really recommend that everybody check out a book called When Old Technologies Were New by Carolyn Marvin. Brilliant, brilliant book on this topic. Um, so there isn't anything that's necessarily new about there being all kinds of utopian hopes that get attached to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and YouTube. Um, nevertheless, like I think that in the moment where there was so much excitement, there was so much hype, and there was so much desire to believe that these tools were going to solve all of our problems. Um, and then we quickly realized, well, not so quickly realized, we have slowly realized, unfortunately, um, there isn't an easy technological solution to a social problem. And more often than not, that technological solution in turn creates new social problems. Ooh, Facebook hasn't been able to solve our societal problems. It has created some new ones. Yeah, and there is another point that you make in the article about how it's like, now if we just go along with what they say in the social dilemma and it's like we give them all right, let's outsource this fixing of the problem to the guys that made the social dilemma. All of a sudden, we think that we can solve the problem by 
the same people that actually created the problem, they're going to be the ones that can fix it for us, which is a little bit naive. So as far as this whole thing goes, I, I think one thing that really stands true, and I didn't mention it beforehand when you were talking about when we, we got onto the conspiracy theory kick, but the critical consumption of information and how important that is and just the ability to discern, even if it is something that you feel like you stand for and it's pushing a narrative, we still need to be even, our spidey senses need to be on at all times, right? Because we could just be going down a, a hole and we think that, no, we're not like easily manipulated like that, but we know that it's possible. We could be manipulated in a way. And so, uh, so with everything, the critical consumption of information, even this podcast, we could yep. say, critically looking at it and recognizing whatever it is, but, but taking, don't take everything at face value, no blind faith on everything. And, and then the, just looking at how to fix this and your idea of, okay, society needs to be changed and there is no easy narrative, right? There is not like this simple fix that we can put a Band-Aid on it and then it will go away. And when you were talking about Y2K and what the difference was there that I saw very clearly is that when Y2K was about to happen, if it did happen and there was this disaster, right? There, there was a lot of money at stake if Y2K happened. And here, what we're dealing with right now is the opposite, that if we stop doing what we're doing, there's a lot of money at stake because now we're no longer going to have these big companies like Facebook and Twitter able to make money off of our data. And so it's... It, goes back to the cliche, right? Follow the money and you'll see. So I yeah, know, I, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that one of the things that is the current situation with social media is like, we're no longer waiting for the disaster to happen. Like we're kind of seeing it right now. And the question is, do we do something about it? Mm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what to do. And I mean, in the social dilemma, they advocate for, they have like a call to action, right? And so I'm wondering, I guess the, the last question is, do we just hop on that bad bandwagon? Because like we said, if it's making you critically think about how you're living your life, and it actually is talking about things that the majority of these things, it's like, yes, I can see that that is not good and we do need to do something about that. Since the social dilemma has this force behind it and it has a momentum, do we just jump on that to try and make things better? Or are we going to try, should we spear or splinter off? I mean, is there anything that you, like a call to action that you would say we should do? So my first response there is I don't know how much momentum there is behind the social dilemma, mm. really. Um, 
I, I recognize that that's kind of a silly thing to say as we're, as we're talking about it right now. Um, but I think that the ultimate impact of this film is probably going to wind up being greatly diminished by all of the attention that has been focused on the pandemic. Um, you know, I think that a lot of these issues around the tech companies, you know, we'll see how much attention they get in the future. Um, in terms of the bandwagon, I think that in the coming years, hopefully, there is going to be a lot of push on how these companies should be run, how these companies should be regulated and so forth, et cetera. Um, and I imagine that the Center for Humane Technology, uh, which is Tristan Harris's group, which is one of the main forces behind the film, I imagine they're going to be one of the big players in this discussion. Um, I think that it's necessary to have pressure and have voices that are outside of that group um, that are not letting that group lead the charge. Um, and then in terms of the things that are in the film, my concern here is that some of the, the closing parts of the social dilemma are actually kind of similar to Al Gore's closing messages at the end of an inconvenient truth. And that in both of these, there's kind of a very big pivot to the personal. That the way to deal with this is like, you just have to use your phone a little bit less. You just need to turn your notifications on silent. You just need to make it so that on Saturday, you don't go on Twitter. Now, I personally think that all of those can be great, meaningful steps. And if they restore a sense of control to your personal life, wonderful. But there is not a personal solution to a societal issue. And that is what I would say is the, the real pushback is that we are not going to serve that we are not going to be able to properly respond to these complex social issues with kind of these discrete personal choices. The bigger question, I know I've said it over and over again, is what kind of society do we want to live in? And if we're going to have a conversation about what kind of society do we want to live in, then the solution cannot be a personal choice that really just affects how you interact with your phone. Hmm. So that'll be the next time you come on here. We'll be talking about <laughs> what kind of a society we want to live in. And I have one last question for you. We'll wrap it up. I know that we've gone a little bit over, so I really want to thank you for coming here and sharing all of this with me and everyone out there, the greater audience. I uh, just Thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, my last question is, are you a robot? Um. So for many years, uh, my friends would mockingly refer to me as Data with a reference to Lieutenant Commander Data from uh, Star Trek. And for several years, I was in a time travel themed rock band where I played the accordion and sang like a robot. However, um, I, I think that I am far too grumpy to be a robot. Amazing. Well, Zachary, I really, really want to thank you again. This has been an incredible conversation and I appreciate you bringing forth these 
kind of critiques and this way of looking at what we may or may not have just let slide under the radar. I encourage everyone to get out there, check out his blog. It is called The Librarian Shipwreck, which is an incredible name also for a blog, <laughs> I have to say. I absolutely loved that one. And again, thanks. Really, really want to um, just let you know that I appreciate talking to you and bringing up these conversations. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be able to participate in this podcast. Um, I was very flattered that you all reached out to me. So thank you very much. Yes. Awesome. We will see you later. Okay. Take care. Thanks again. Thanks again.